Second Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to pull back just one verse to, to get a running start from where we were last week. The Lord knows how, I love that, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Note those two things, those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and those who despise authority. Daring self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, or Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke for his own transgression. For a mute donkey speaking, the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. These are springs without water and mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Dogs and pigs. Bluebell, Jesse, and Pincher. Snowball, Napoleon, Squealer. If these names even ring a bell, you may have to draw all the way back to high school when you were required to read Animal Farm. That, that George Orwell satirical fairy tale of dogs and pigs taking over Manor Farm led by a, a group of pigs under the Leninist boar named Major. The book starts with Major giving a final speech. He's this big boar and, and widely respected among the animals on, on the manor farm. And then he gives this speech about overthrow and rebellion and, and, and then he dies. And then the rest of the pigs take up the charge led by Snowball and Napoleon who fight back and forth and ultimately Napoleon rises to the top. And, and it's, it's an interesting satire based on the Russian Revolution, talking about the Re- Russian Revolution, and yet 72 years after its publication in 1946, Animal Farm is as relevant today as it was then. I actually, I'm, I'm weird this way, but I went back and read the book this week. Knowing what we were going to talk about, I thought... I haven't read that, I I don't think, since high school. 114 pages, just read it straight through. Interesting, interesting book. And while the Russian Revolution was what it was, 
The book is worth reading because it speaks about human nature. It paints an interesting picture about the animal quality that sometimes human beings desire or follow. Bizarre that we have been created by God above the animals to rule and reign over all animals as unique and different, the crown of His creation, and yet watch and see how people chase after being animalistic or elevating the animals to the place of equality with human beings. That we're all one, you know, and and just because we happen to be at the top of the food chain or the most intelligent doesn't mean that that we're not all equal. And it's, it's bizarre. The text in front of us of this second half of Peter's warning against false teachers includes pigs and dogs. It even includes a donkey here, like the cantankerous donkey in the story Animal Farm, a donkey whose name is Benjamin, and, and Benjamin at one point is asked about the rebellion. What do you think about the rebellion? The excited animals say, and Benjamin says, donkeys live a long time. None of you has ever seen a dead donkey. And his whole point is, rebellions come and go, but nature stays the same. Nothing really changes. Inevitably, things continue as things were before and and he's the one who is uh, sardonic and and not believing even in the rebellion itself that happens on manor farm which becomes then animal farm well you could call second peter chapter 2 peter's animal farm because what he deals with with the false teachers here is is the basis of things an animalistic mentality toward life false teachers he even calls them unreasoning animals in verse 12. Because if false teachers are anything, they are unreasoning, senseless, instinctual, dumb. He ends the passage by quoting from Proverbs 26 verse 11, like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. And that's the false teacher. So, welcome to Animal Farm this morning. Again, last week we paused at that sweet phrase, the Lord knows how. The Lord knows how. That is one worth repeating when you don't. The Lord knows how. He knows how to judge that which needs to be judged. He also knows how to rescue the righteous. The righteous being those who simply trust in Jesus Christ because that's where our righteousness comes from. Jesus knows how to save. Jesus knows how to condemn And he does both with absolute, unfailing justice and righteousness. I want to read this to you. This is John chapter 5, verse 22. Where Jesus said, not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death and into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of God. Or because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. 
those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, and those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. The Lord knows how. We know how only in as much as we follow and listen to the voice of Jesus. And this is the key in the world in which we live. The only way we can know how is by listening to the voice of our shepherd, the voice of Jesus. But after saying the Lord knows how, Peter now heads into this section where he gets specific regarding those who especially are held in reserve. What we're calling this judgment in reserve. Those who are reserved for judgment or judgment is reserved for them. And in this second half of the chapter, he he begins it with a transitional verse. Verse 10 transitions into the latter part. And in verse 10, I pointed out to you, he refers to two different things. He talks about those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires, number one. And number two, those who despise authority. So that's the, the outline, if you will, for the second half of this chapter. But he's going to take them in reverse. So Peter, first we'll talk about those who despise authority, and then he gets into those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires as a description for false teachers. So taking them in reverse, those who despise authority. Or how we're going to translate it this morning, bold bores. Bold bores. Verse 10. Daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. We think we know a lot about angels. You can go into Christian bookstores, you can go into regular bookstores and find volumes written on angels. Truth is, we know very little. The truth is, we don't know as much as we think we know. And the reality is, it is pure arrogance... To stand up against or speak against or revile or blaspheme things about which we know very little. And we do it all the time. Beings that we don't really comprehend, can't fully understand. And especially note this, false teachers love to claim knowledge and authority that frankly they just don't have. I'm always alerted. When someone gets up to speak somewhere, reads a verse, and then speaks for an hour. And I'm not saying that the Lord can't speak through someone in that case. But it's interesting to me the amount of information and education and learning that sometimes is espoused that just goes all over the place. And you start to ask the question, where's this coming from? How does he know? Where is she picking up her information? See, Peter wrote back in verse 1, uh, or verse 3 of chapter 1, that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Listen, Jesus is our knowledge base. Christ is our information, is our understanding, is our revelation. Even as Paul said in Colossians 2.3, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Want to understand something? Go to Jesus. You want to learn something? Talk to Him. You want to gain comprehension? Go to His Word and seek the truth as Jesus brings it. But it's fascinating that when it comes to powers in the heavenly places... And authorities in the spirit realm, majesties, glories, both godly and demonic, 
The truth is, these things fly above our pay grade. Our understanding is limited. Much of what takes place in the spirit realm is beyond our purview. Because our knowledge is limited, and rightly so. Rightly so, because here's the problem. We human beings will worship anything greater than ourselves. We'll do it with other human beings. But the moment we start to look at angelic majesties and and spiritual beings, we start to get into a worship mode. We start to elevate them. Note this, he says, these are those who revile angelic majesties. Angelic majesties, majesties is doxa, it means glories. But he's talking about evil angelic majesties. He's referring specifically to demonic powers here, because he immediately then contrasts these with angels of God. Angels who won't do what sometimes even human beings will do, and that is revile these angelic authorities, again, about which we know very little. And like I said, the danger is we begin to worship. We begin to fall down before, even as John the Apostle did. Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. But the false teacher is a bold bore. He will revile things that he does not understand. He'll talk as if he had full knowledge of the spirit realm and he gets way out ahead of Jesus. I think of the seven sons of Sceva. In the the book of Acts... Those seven Jewish guys who go around and start proclaiming the name of Jesus to cast out demons and they themselves get cast out of a house and run away naked and beat up. It's a great story. (laughs) Getting out ahead of ourselves, proclaiming that we have authority. Well, we do have authority, but listen, in the name of Jesus. And I often think when when praying over an illness or or praying over some difficulty in a life or even praying over a situation of demonic oppression that the best thing we can do is stand behind our big brother and let him fight. Call on the name of the Lord and let him go before. And don't pretend to know that we know more than we really know. And we're talking here again about false teachers who are among believers. That's the context of this whole thing. These are not false teachers coming from the outside. These are false teachers coming up from within. And the danger is getting ahead of and out front of the Lord. And a sure sign that someone is a false teacher is bold arrogance. As if they know. Well, Rick, you sit up there every Sunday morning and act like you know. No, I know what this says. And I will teach what this says. But catch me on an off day. Rick, you, you, you taught that, uh, that lesson back, back in Exodus. And I'm just curious what you meant by that. And I'm like, I have no idea. That was like 12 years ago. What, you think I'm a walking encyclopedia? Let me get my Bible. We'll thumb back through and see if we can figure this out together. But the knowledge and the truth and the revelation that comes of the Word of God by the Spirit of God is trustworthy and true. The knowledge that comes from someone who is haughty and self-arrogant and prideful, the bold bore is dangerous. Last week I called them self-righteous prigs. Now listen, I, I did the second service. I didn't use the phrase first service. And second service, 
I was completely misunderstood by a handful of people. They heard me say self-righteous prig, and they didn't hear prig, P-R-I-G. It's a legitimate word. It's a legitimate phrase. What exactly does it mean? Well, I'm going to give it to you from a quote from C.S. Lewis who said, A cold, self-righteous prig who regularly goes to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it's better to be neither. C.S. Lewis. So beware the bold boar. Again, these angelic majesties that he's talking about here are evil majesties. And the Bible does tell us, Ephesians 6.12, Paul writes, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. Why does Paul take us there at all then? Because Paul is saying, look, don't fight people, fight the demons, but as you do so, you do so with the full armor of God. Not yours. Not your head knowledge, not your experience, not your arrogance. You fight with the armor of God. And you keep things into perspective that the battle we're in is a battle that is won by faith. It's a battle that is won by prayer. A battle that is fought with the weapon of the sword of the word. And as we fight this battle, we consider human beings in this battle not to be our enemies, but to be captives of the enemy who we fight. But we don't tear, and we don't dare take on this enemy ourselves. Again, we stand behind Jesus. I mean, how dare we stand up and say, it's okay, Lord, I've got this. I, you just, you're fine. I'll take care of this one myself. Well, danger. Jude gives us a little bit more insight in this letter. Verses 8 and 9, he says, These men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. That's a fantastic piece of scripture. Michael the archangel who we know wins the victory over the devil and over the demons in Revelation 12, Michael stands up and rather than getting all after Satan, just says, the Lord rebuke you. Michael stands behind the name of the Lord. By the way, what Peter mentions here about these angelic majesties and what what Jude then goes on to tell about Michael fighting with Satan and, and again, the reviling of angelic majesties, both Peter and Jude are referring to some extra-biblical documents. If you're wondering, where does this come from? This very unique and interesting thing. Prior to the coming of Jesus, about 300 years prior, a couple of works began to circulate among the Jewish people So this is pre-New Testament days, in in between the Testaments, if you will. One was called the Assumption or Testament of Moses. The other one's called the Book of Enoch. And we know from reading these documents that that is where Peter and Jude drew this information. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. Neither one of those are included in the canon of Scripture. Neither one of those are included in the New Testament or the Old Testament or even in a between Testament. We don't have these as quote-unquote inspired books. So how can Peter or Jude be quoting from them? Well, don't be surprised if the Bible mentions things that are mentioned in other works. Truth is truth wherever it's found. 
Okay, The Bible is truth, but there are truths in some other places. And in both of these works, apparently the Spirit saw fit to include this information as true and legitimate. Now these things actually happen. I know they happen because they're quoted in Scripture. This much we know to be true. Good angels know their place. It's the evil ones that get out of line, as we talked about last week. Good angels know to entrust all judgment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, as the, as the angel said to John, don't worship me, I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Tragically, these, these same demonic forces, these bold boars that we're talking about here, they are going to be destroyed by the very demonic forces that they revile when it all comes down. Verse 12, But these, these bold boars, these false teachers, these like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. Animals live by instinct. That's the deal. And you know that. Our, our dog, Reggie, who, you know, has since passed, was one of the most instinctual cavaliers I've ever seen in my life. See, Reggie didn't get the memo that being a King Charles cavalier was to be a stately dog, a quiet dog, a sweet and understanding. No, 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 he didn't get that. And Reggie, man, he was the king of marking. <laughs> to his dying day I mean, this, this dog was just incredibly instinctual if he was inside the front door was open and he saw a squirrel he was out the door like a shot now we had had a previous cavalier named Rudy if he saw a squirrel he'd go whatever anyway animals are instinctual they're hardwired to, to act, hardwired to do what they were created to do. Dogs, hardwired to lap up their own vomit. I'm glad that's not something that's instinctual in us. <laughs> Amen. Pigs, who instinctually roll in their own steaming manure. Unreasoning, unthinking, instinctual, the basest stuff of flesh. And that's the picture that he's painting here as someone who's not reasoning in the reason of the Spirit of God, but someone who is just going by base instinct. No right, no wrong, just pure physical response. In fact, the word instinct here is fusikos, where we get our word physical. Fusikos. It means natural, governed by the instinct of nature. No regard for a higher moral truth or for any kind of standards. It's just what feels good, what feels right in the moment. That's what you do. And you know, we just see this growing and growing and growing in our culture. No regard for higher moral truth. The uh, Supreme Court nominee is supposed to be given by President Trump tomorrow. People are waiting you know, it's so funny, he hasn't even named the person and already the person who is unnamed is being attacked. How does that work? And if you watch this, what I realized, I, I was reading an article about this that said, quote, Maj the majority of Americans agree with this issue but want certain limitations on it. So what's the issue? Well, the big issue that's being raised right now is Roe v. Wade. Abortion rights. 
That's the one that's being waged, and those on the left are saying, if this nominee will do anything to change that law, we're against it. Well, that's, that's not really the issue that, that, that caught my eye in reading this article. It was that the majority of Americans agree with Roe v. Wade. They just want certain limitations on it. Here's what struck me in the article. Apparently, we live in a country where right and wrong is by polling. It's popular opinion that matters. So if 51% of Americans believe something to be true, well, then it must be true. You know, 99% of Americans can think something is true and be completely wrong. That polling is not the thing. That, that living where the majority determine the morality. See, that's why we need the scripture so desperately. Because if we go by majority opinion, we're going to be in trouble. Because the majority can be wrong. We've even talked about this among our shepherds. I've said, guys, I want to hear every opinion because we could have 14 guys who are on the same page and one is on the different page and the one happens to be right. We don't go by the majority. We go by the Messiah. We listen to His Word. I mean, what is it but instinctual and physical and animalistic when you go by the majority? That's what animals do. The pecking order. Romans 1.21 says, Even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the corrupt, incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now, Paul is talking about idolatry here. But I read that and I thought, wow, that could also imply behaving like four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Living again by instinct. They're a group of sheep in Animal Farm. And they keep popping up and at all these meetings they pop up. And if one of the animals disagrees with what's going on or, or raises a question, before it can be answered or debated or discussed, the sheep begin bleeding out as loud as possible. Four legs good, two legs bad. Four legs good, two legs bad. And they just go on and on until everybody is done debating. Just drown it out. Instinctual response. God does not leave us to wallow in ignorance or in arrogance. He's given us in His Word the high moral standard. By the way, note this, it's important. The word unreasoning in verse 12, these like unreasoning animals, unreasoning is an interesting word. It's a logos. A, in, in the Greek, when put before a word, tends to take it to the negative. So not the logos is what we're saying. Unreasoning. Not Logos, contrary to, destitute of reason. The Logos, which we understand to be a word that John uses as the mind of God, describing Jesus Himself. In the beginning was the Logos, John 1 verse 1. And the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God, and the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is reason. Unreasoning animals are the alogos, the not logos, the not reasonable. And the false teacher and those who follow after will go the way of the dumb, instinctual animal. And Peter says these instinctual animals basically have one of two ends. They'll either be captured or they will be killed. 
And that's it. That's it for the animal kingdom. That's what they have to look forward to, capture or death. Those are the two options. Proverbs 14, verse 32 tells us, The wicked is thrust down by his own wrongdoing, but the righteous has a refuge when he dies. Well, Peter now turns from these who despise authority to the second group, or the same group, but the second description, those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires, what we will call, number two, sensual swine. So we've covered bold boars, now we're looking at sensual swine. Continuing on, they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes. Reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. A pleasure to revel in the daytime. Daytime revelers. The word for revel is hedone, hedonism. That's where we get it. And the Greek thinking set hedone in stark contrast with logos. These were opposite words. So logos, reason, hedone, uh, reveling, opposite words to the Greek. And Peter is indicating here a, a shameless indulgence. Again, like pigs rolling around in their own stink in broad daylight because, hey, this is great. This is what we do. And not even embarrassed of it. Do we see this in our culture? People rolling around in sin and proud of it. In broad daylight. Parading it through the streets, as it were. To say, this is good. This is okay. This is what we do now. Stains and blemishes. Peter calls them stains and and blemishes. It's interesting that he uses the opposite words just a bit further on. In chapter 3, verse 14, he says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Which again in the Greek is the opposite of stains and blemishes. Don't be stains, be spotless. Don't be blemishes, be blameless. And he uses this word carouse, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. At least one early translation uses the phrase love feast, as they love feast with you. And Jude does the same thing. Jude verse 12, these are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring only for themselves. Now many of you know this, that love feasts were the way many times the first century church enjoyed or, or shared communion together. Paul had to get on the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 over their abuse of the table of the Lord and their love feasts. It got out of hand. But the idea was great. The idea was you come together, you share a meal together, and you either begin with or you end with breaking bread and passing the cup of communion together, sharing in that time of fellowship. The problem is the pig is only in it for their own meal. The false teacher is in it not to share in the fellowship, but to gain an advantage. To to find a place of position. And that's piggish. My mother, when she was a little girl, lived on a farm for, for several years. And she raised a piglet. Sweet little pig. You know, I mean, it's almost like... Uh, Charlotte's Web, little Wilbur, raising the little runt. 
And she took care of this pig and bottle fed it, and then ultimately it had to move out into the into the farmyard, and, and it grew big into this big hulking boar. And when it got older, it attacked her. Sent her running out of the pig pen, diving over the fence as it tried to eat her. Well, of course, the pig's name was Appetite. <laughs> Every pig has an appetite. Pigs who show up for the love feast are not there for the love. They're there for the feast. And they're there to consume. Which is why Jesus said in Matthew 7, 6, Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. And so Peter says, These have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. And some commentators even went so far as to say, these are false teachers always looking at any and all women as possible conquests. Eyes full of adultery. They're looking for the chance, for the opportunity, for those who perhaps are unstable souls. Enticing unstable souls. Going after those who are perhaps new in faith or, or a little weak in faith or struggling in faith it, it's wild but it's absolutely true because sin just begets sin you know we, we compartmentalize sin well there's this sin over here and there's that sin over there well the truth is if you're in this sin then that one is right there so if you're in the sin of deception sexually explicit sin is also right there waiting to enter in and be part of the deal And these false teachers are sexually driven. It is all about the feeling. They're enticing. That word entice means to catch by bait, which a fisherman would understand what he was saying when Peter wrote this. Again, these unstable souls who are unwitting, brand new, or or weak in their faith. He says they're trained in greed. The word trained implies athletic training. That they've actually spent time preparing and thinking through and and, and moving in a place of greed. And it's not monetary greed, by the way. It's erotic greed. Which is why they are accursed children. Or literally, children of the curse. Genesis 3, verses 16 through 19. We won't read it right now, but go back and read the curse. The false teacher is trying to take someone from the truth and return them to the curse. Jesus died to, re- to free us from the curse, to remove the curse of sin that would cause us to die eternally. The false teacher wants to go right back there, children of the curse. These sensual swine. <laughs> Rushing headlong back in. Kind of like the incident in the region of the Gadarenes. Matthew chapter 8, Luke uh, chapter 8, Mark chapter 5. You remember the demons begged Jesus Not to send them into the abyss, but into the herd of swine. And so he did, and they became deviled ham. (laughs) The Bay of Pigs. Swine Lake. Rushing headlong, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's a crazy story, and part of the craziness of it is that when Jesus sends the demons out of this man, they call themselves Legion, for we are many. He, he casts them out of the man, they go into the pigs, and what do they do? They rush down the hill and they kill themselves. At least the pigs. Take them right into the lake and they all drown. That's the picture. That's what the false teacher is doing, rushing headlong back to the curse. And then to cap it all off, he compares false teachers 
to the self-indulgence of that foolish prophet Balaam. Verse 15. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam. Now I want you to note something here because we're going to come back to this in Revelation. There are two things to note about Balaam. There's the way of Balaam and there is the error of Balaam. And they are two separate things. So this morning I'm only dealing with the way of Balaam as we look at this. The son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. Okay, we got to read that story. Numbers 22. Numbers 22 in your Bibles. Go ahead and turn back there. King Balak. He, he sent men to hire Balaam, the seer, Sent him to hire him uh, twice. First time he came and Balaam goes to the Lord. Well, Lord, can I go with him? No. No, he can't go with them. No. So I can't go with you. So they go away. He sends Balak, sends another group of, of men to Balaam. And Balaam goes, well, let me ask the Lord again. Lord, can I go with him? No, no, no. You can't go with them. Balaam goes, okay. And he goes back to the men. The Lord says, I can't go with you. Not even if you gave me a house full of money. <laughs> Can I go with you? So they go back and they tell Balak he wants a house full of money. Okay, we'll give it to him. Here's where the story picks up. Numbers, 18, uh, Numbers 22, verse 18. <laughs> Balaam replied to the servants, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything. Neither small nor great, contrary to the command of the Lord my God. Now, please, you stay here also tonight, and I will find out what, the, what else the Lord will speak to me. Well, the Lord already said no. Note that in our lives, when we pray to Jesus for something, or some situation, or something we desire, and God says no, no means no. If you've ever been a parent, you understand the frustration of saying no, and being asked again. Well, Jesus is clear with us. If it's a no, let it be no. But Balaam goes back to the Lord again. God came to, came to Balaam at night, verse 20, and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise up and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you shall you do. And you can almost hear the incredulity in God's voice. He's saying, Okay, go. Go with them. But only do what I tell you to do. It's amazing you would even ask me again. But Go. So Balaam arose in the morning and saddled his donkey. I think the donkey's name may have been Benjamin, but I don't know. And went with the leaders of Moab. But God was angry because he was going. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now, he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with a drawn sword in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field. But Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back into the way. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path of the vineyards, a wall on this side and a wall on that side. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord as she pressed herself to the wall, and she pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. The angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right hand or to the left. Man, there's so much in this story that we could talk about. About how God's trying to direct us, and we just keep going forward, keep plowing ahead in the wrong direction. The way of Balaam. Well, when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, verse 27, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with his stick. (laughs) And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. 
I love Jesus. <laughs> and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Talking donkeys. I mean, it's an incredible story. You know what's really incredible about it? Balaam talks back. (laughs) If I'm riding a donkey and it turns and begins to speak to me, I'm running in the opposite direction. But no, no. Balaam turns around and says, because you've made a mockery of me. (laughs) Who's making a mockery of who? If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. And the donkey says to Balaam, so now we're having a conversation. (laughs) Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And he said, no. (laughs) It's just hysterical. Do I want to even keep going? Yeah, go a little further. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand, and he bowed all the way to the ground. And the angel of the Lord said to him, this is the Malach Yahweh, said to him, you Bible students, think about that, Malach Yahweh, the messenger of the Lord, who we have seen again and again in the Hebrew Scriptures, to be a Christology, or a Christophany, that is a a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Well, can you prove that, Rick? No, I can't. It's just my opinion. The angel of the Lord said, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out as an adversary because your way, note that, your way was contrary to me. That's the way of Balaam. The way of Balaam is heading in a direction that is contrary to the Lord. It is self-serving. It is self-indulgent. It is self-gratifying. Why was Balaam going? Because Balaam wanted to cash in. As I've been saying, the prophet for profit. He wanted to make a buck off of this. I figured here was a great way to do it. The picture that Peter is painting for us in the way of Balaam, this is the motivation. This is the heart. Peter is drawing this false teacher out. And by the way, Balaam will end up dead by the sword. Joshua 13.22 Dead by the sword? Yeah, because the sword can either bring death or it can bring life. Jesus said in John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And has not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life, as we read earlier. Well, John 12.48, Jesus says, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him in the last day. The sword of the word of God can either bring death or life. In Balaam's case, death. False teaching is nothing. Nothing but that which brings death. And Peter continues on. Go back to 2 Peter 2.17. It's nothing but hollow phrases and vaporous promises. These are springs without water. If you've ever been thirsty on a hot day and you've gone down to a spring, but there's no water there, that's what he's describing. They're mists driven by a storm. That is, there's nothing in them. These words that are spoken, nothing there for whom the black darkness has been reserved. By contrast, Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, John 7, 37, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Not mists driven by a storm, not springs without water. 
For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they enticed by fleshly desires, by sensuality, which he just described, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. He's talking here about believers who are right on the edge. They're on the fringe, or maybe just fresh out of the world, right out of the lost world, just starting to learn. The false teacher goes after those who are weakest in faith and the knowledge of the Word, which is why we are in the Word. That you would not be weak in faith. You will not be strong in faith if you are not in the Word of God. I mentioned recently a young believer who came to me and was and was frustrated because she just felt like she didn't know the word. There was this word is there's so much here and I don't know and I don't understand. Stay with it, stay with it. You will. That's the beauty of of, of studying through God's word is you will know the word because God has this beautiful way from Genesis to Revelation of building on over and over the concepts, the moral truths the absolutes that he wants us to know and understand he comes at them again and again and again until they get in and it's a marvelous approach that the Lord takes but especially note this last phrase he says by what a man is overcome by this he is enslaved the false teacher Promises a freedom that is an illusion. A freedom that is not freedom, it's captivity. Their own sinful lifestyle is what proves it. That they themselves, while offering freedom, are still themselves captives. But you know the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 3.17, Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There is true freedom. Here's the difference. The Lord offers us freedom from sin. The false teacher offers freedom to sin. You're just free, you know, to do whatever. Hey, by grace you have been saved, therefore do what you want to do. Because you're saved by grace, you know. And you can do what, in fact, you can do whatever you want to do with me, they might say. The grace of God sets us truly free. Sin can only enslave. But listen, I've told you this before. The primary doctrinal concern of this three chapter letter, the main focus of Peter, the one the false teachers denied and still to this day deny is the imminence of the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's the main doctrine. That's the one that Peter wants to stir up by way of reminder, looking at verse 4 of chapter 3, they're saying, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And by the way, I'm excited because when we get into chapter 3 on Wednesday night, we leave false teachers and we get into the true doctrine. Of the coming of Jesus. And next Sunday we get to talk about the day of God. And it's marvelous and it's encouraging and it's upbuilding, but the false teacher would detour you from that. The false freedom, it's thought the false freedom that they promised was a detour from the true freedom coming with the second coming of Jesus. Then he brings freedom. And he would bring freedom, so look to his coming, but the false teacher's like, I don't know, you missed it. He came. That's that's not the thing now. They would deny His coming. 
And Jesus said in Luke 4.18, quoting Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's the promise of freedom. That's, by the way, the church age, the favorable year of the Lord is the age that we're in. That this is the time of grace where God is saying, I'm throwing out my grace on the table. Come and believe and trust in me and receive my grace and you will be free from sin. Not having to do sin anymore. The world and the false teacher will offer you freedom from Jesus. You don't have to go to church. You don't have to be in that kind of fellowship. You don't have to study the Bible. You don't have to do that Christian thing. Just be tolerant of all things. Freedom, right? And the more the world cries freedom to do whatever we want to do, the more enslaved people become. It's even freedom from His righteous judgment. And that is not freedom at all. It's arrogance, it's ignorance, it's enslavement. Verse 20, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, then the last state has become worse for them than the first. Wait a minute. Is he saying that a person can be saved and lose their salvation? Let me be clear, this is not a treatise on eternal security or free will. That is not what Peter is dealing with here. He wasn't writing in anticipation of Calvin or Arminius. What Peter's doing is, first of all, drawing a picture from Jesus. Remembering something Jesus himself taught. What was that? Note this. Matthew chapter 12, verse 43. Jesus said, When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. They go in and they live there. And note this, the last state of that man is worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. What Peter's describing here, what he's saying is to to know Christ and then to abandon Him for the old ways. And that is far worse than not knowing Jesus at all. Why? Because that person is far less likely to come back to Jesus. That's the frightening thing. Someone who gives church a dry, you know, or follows Jesus for a season seemingly outwardly and we're not discussing or debating was that person saved was they not saved you know that that's an argument for the theologians you know I know people who for a season claimed to follow Jesus and then they didn't anymore so however you want to term that in your theology fine but please understand they will be less likely to come back to him why is that I like how one commentator put it he said they would not grant a fresh hearing to the gospel, concluding that they had already been through that phase. Well, I've already been down that road. Why would I go back there again? And that state is worse than the first. Worse to 
know, even if it's not complete knowledge, worse to, to say, to, to fall, and then to reject and walk away is a worse state. And the implication is that the judgment will be worse because it's no longer ignorance, now it's arrogance. In fact, to follow Christ and then to reject Christ is to do so in knowledgeable rebellion. As opposed to those who don't know any different. Verse 22, it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. One is a biblical proverb, Proverbs 26.11 about the dog. The other, about the pig, was a cultural proverb in the day, and both paint the picture very truthfully. Here's the thing to understand. The dog lapping up his own puke, and the pig rolling in his own poop. They don't know any better. It's what they do. They don't have any sense that that's gross, or weird, or stinky behavior. They are instinctual. They are unreasoning animals. And Peter's plea through this entire section is leave Animal Farm. Stop living on Animal Farm. The haunting final sentence of George Orwell's classic book reads as follows. The creatures looked from pig to man, from man to pig, and from pig to man again, but already it was impossible to say which was which. I read that last week, closed the book, and shuddered. Because that is the nature of man today. That's what we're seeing, looking from pig to man and man to pig, and it's hard to tell the difference. Unreasoning animals to unreasoning animals. Who's any better? Who is any different? Listen, God gave us conscience. He gave us reason. He gave us intellect. And He gave us the one thing above all others that uniquely separates humanity from all other creatures on the earth, an eternal spirit. A spirit through which and by which we can hear His Spirit and follow after Him. It was God who said in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, Come now, let us reason. Together, Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you'll eat the best of the land. If you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Animals don't read. But we have the word of Christ. Animals can't reason. Paul says we have the mind of Christ. Animals don't receive revelation. We have the Spirit of Christ Jesus revealing all things and truth to us. And this is the church of Jesus Christ. It is not animal farm. We are not dogs and pigs. We do not return to the old ways. In fact, I think the closest comparison to any animal in the Bible is we are sheep. But we're not just dumb sheep. We are sheep who hear and know the voice of the Good Shepherd and we follow Him. Amen? Amen. Father, we pray to You now as Your followers, as Your people, as those who desire 
to know truth, Lord. We don't want to know what the latest polling says. We're not concerned with the majority opinions. Even, Lord, in this fellowship, it's not about the majority. There, we, we follow a majority of one. We serve one God, one King, one Master. And that is You alone. You establish, Lord, the truth. You speak what is right. You show us the way. And that is the way we want to follow. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that You will keep our minds sharp. Keep our hearts open to Your Spirit to hear You and to know You, to apply the Word of truth in our lives, not to be dissuaded, not to be pulled off track, not to be attracted or enticed by false teachers, some who are unknowing, some who are knowing. But either way, that we will stand on the Word of truth You've given us and we will walk in the way of Jesus Christ. And it's in His name I pray. Amen.